0: For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: Have you ever wondered how to make a shrunken head or why there was a cat floating up in space in 1963? or just what it takes for a monkey to become an astronaut? Did you know that a snarky swearing parrot ruined Andrew Jackson's funeral? And that a crew of 28 explorers drifted lost on the ice floes of Antarctica for two years during World War One? And why does fruitcake exist? If you want to excavate through the deepest primordial interiors of the human experience, reach back into time and find the stories that connect all of us to a place where real history is woven with storytelling that brings the past back to life. Then come visit the History Cash podcast for some exhaustively researched historical narrative that just might inspire you to make your own history. That's cash spelled C-A-C-H-E. It's history better than fiction. A podcast crafted for the most curious of minds. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Hello, and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Ann Foster, and this is Christina of Sweden, part four. So I didn't realize when I started doing this, this was going to be a four-part episode, but frankly, the amount of stuff that this person did, it just keeps going. She's unrelenting. We've had other people who, I don't know, I think part of it is that Christina became king when she was a little girl, and then she kept doing interesting stuff for the whole rest of her life like there's been other people you know fred again for instance where we don't know what she was up to as a child she just enters the historical record when she wins the heart of the king that time but like christina because she was royal we know every detail about her from her childhood which is all wild and interesting as you know from part one the first well, when she was being queen actively that's part two part three we looked at what she got up to after she left sweden and Unlike some other people, even like Catalina de Arraso, whose story has so many parallels to her, honestly, just from the sort of the queer stuff, the pants stuff, the love of velvet stuff, just the, the overall chaos of it. Like the similarities But Catalina, we don't know a lot about. Like she grew up in the convent. We don't know what she was like. After Catalina met the Pope, she kind of went back to South America, maybe died, maybe didn't. Like we don't know about Christina. It's like every month of her life, we know exactly what she was doing from records from the appalled diaries of people who saw her doing things and I couldn't I couldn't leave out any of it. It's such a wildly interesting, irritating story. And this is part 4. This will be, I think, the final part. I think. We'll see how long it takes to get through this part. So, as with the other episodes, I would give the advice to listen to parts 1 through 3 before you get to part 4, but You know, that's just because that's how I've experienced it. Maybe if you want to just jump in with part four, welcome aboard. It's a wild ride. And here we go. So when last we left Christina. So she was being a freelance queen in Rome, but she decided because of debt reasons, various reasons, that just wasn't the life for her. And then she figured out, well, she didn't, I don't think she invented this plan, but she got wind of this plan that Cardinal Mazarin in France wanted to try for the third time to take over Naples, and he needed some sort of freelance queen to take over, and that's where she came in with her signature enthusiasm. So because of her BFF at Salino, she knew about codes, she knew about how to write secret sexy letters, but something to this extent you know, like usurping Naples. It's like she needed to have some face-to-face time with Meseret. Like, it was just becoming too dangerous to do this all in letters. Like, even Azzolino, I don't think he knew that this plan was taking form. So she was like, okay, I got to go to Paris to have some face time with Meseret to talk about this plan of ours, Um, her plan to, you know, get on a horse and, like, do her Alexander the Great cosplay, his plan to not do that exactly. But she had like only just gotten to Rome fairly recently-ish. It would be suspicious if she suddenly just like left Rome. So she had to come up with an excuse why she was leaving. I mean, she did, but also she lives for the drama. She lives for the espionage. This is like, I don't relate to Christina in every way, but her love of just scheming, I really, I feel that too. So the plan was she made up was, she said she had to return to Sweden to sort out some financial stuff. And as she was broke, and everybody knew she was broke, this was not suspicious at all. She's also a pretty chaotic and random person. So honestly, if she was just like, I'm just going out of town for a bit, everyone would be like, good, bye. So then her alibi got even stronger because there was an outbreak of plague in Rome, which meant that everybody who could leave was leaving. So it made sense that she would leave too. And because of the plague, the Swiss and the Germans had closed their borders. So if you look at a map of Europe, it's not Rome- to Sweden doesn't have to go through France, but if the Swiss and Germans had closed their borders, she kind of had to go that way. So she had to go through France to get to Sweden, which was not where she was going. She was going to France. It was a secret to a lot of people, but like the Pope knew what she was up to. And luckily for her, he financed the trip because she, of course, had zero money. He financed the trip because he's like, good, you know, taking over Naples is like good for me in some way, I guess. Or maybe he was financing the trip because... Did the Pope know about it? Now I forget the exact details of this. The Pope knew she was going. Maybe he just thought she was going to Sweden and he was financing that. You know what? The Pope just wanted her to leave and he was happy. Everybody was just delighted. She had been there for what, like a couple years? And she had more than worn out her welcome because with her just sort of like Miley Cyrus bangers era, just the, this young woman who's so excited to get to do her own thing, it just becomes a bit off-putting. Not that Miley Cyrus is at all off-putting. I don't know why I keep relating this to Miley Cyrus, but like like Miley Cyrus, Christina was from a very young age. She was being sort of controlled by mostly men who told her what to do. And then eventually she was just like, fuck this. I'm going to do my own thing. And I think the thing is that Miley Cyrus had her bangers era, but she's not still in it. Like she moved on to other eras. Christina just like is still in this really high key, really excited to get to do her own thing. Be a spy era. So one English spy in Rome wrote, quote, They begin to be weary at Rome of their new guest, the Queen of Sweden. And so she had been living in this place, the Palazzo Farnese. And one of her, like, aides there wrote, We've been singing the songs of the children of Israel after their escape from Egypt. I can hardly believe she's gone. Every moment I'm afraid of seeing her still in the place. It was, it was a good time for her to, like, step away from Rome. So she set off with an entourage. She's always got her entourage with her. This time it was about 60 people. They were mostly men. There's just two women who were actually sound like pretty awesome women. They were these two kind of like thieves slash fences who would help her when she had to pawn off some of her valuables. So these two just kind of like rough women along with a whole bunch of Italian men, including her close friend Mondaleski, who was her master of the horse. And the description of, there's like four ships, I think, and she was on one of the ships. And her apartment on board the ship, she given specifications which wanted it to be like. And reading about it just makes me think exactly of Steed Bonnet's quarters on the ship on our flag means death. So her room on like a ship was sumptuously furnished in red damask with a vast throne-like armchair covered in velvet. So she's just living in this extravagant, glamorous room while on like literally the same ship, like below decks. The ship was being rowed by enslaved prisoners of war and criminals. So as forever with her, like when she was putting together her coronation as the people of Sweden were starving because there was no bread, like there's this, the contrast of her kind of glamorous, like over the top luxury lifestyle and what was happening with other people. The ships sort of sailed like really close to the coast the whole way because they didn't want to run into the Barbary Corsairs, who we learned about in the Saida al-Hura episode, because this is kind of a place where they were. So they, but staying close to the coast, meant there wasn't pirates, although Christina wrote in her unpublished memoirs that she kind of had fantasies. She like at one point thought she saw some pirates. She fantasized that maybe she'd be taken off to join the Turkish harem so the ship was sailing along pretty slowly because it was going along the coast not like straight there and when they got to Marseille in France which was their destination that's where they're going to disembark and then continue on on horses and carriages and stuff the people of Marseille protested because they knew that there was plague in Rome slash Italy so the people kind of had like a riot type moment just wanting the they didn't want the ship to land and understandable valid intelligent good for them so there was sort of a compromise made where maybe, you know, like the ship, like on her flag means death. Like you get on the little ship, like you drop your anchor further out and then the little ships come in with the people on. But Christina was like, that is not a grand enough arrival for me. I refuse. And so eventually they were able to pull up the ship to the quay. I don't know a little about ship parking, but that anyway, it pleased her. And so they arrived and from Mazarin's money, like he had funded so that every place where they stopped on their way, Christine would be celebrated because she's this like, you know, new Catholic monarch. It's really exciting. So there was three days of public festivities, which to their credit as well, the people of Marseille changed their mind and they're like, you know what? We're glad to have her here. She's funding three days of parties. Here we go. And so then they set off by land to Paris. For the last part of the journey, she was accompanied by the Duke de Guise, who pops up in the story a lot. I'm not going to mention him every time he does. But he was just kind of like a notable person in France in this era. Uh, What is interesting about him in this context is that he was actually the guy who, last time we talked about how Mazarin had tried to take over Naples before, and the Duc de Guise had been the person who he placed as king briefly. So Christina was excited to meet this guy who was not only just a handsome, famous womanizer and also French, but he was also like sort of the sort of war hero that she was a big stand for. And he wrote back to the king what he thought of her which includes some interesting details about what she looks like. So these are just excerpts from the longer thing he wrote. So he wrote, Her face is nicely shaped but framed by the most extraordinary coiffure. She wears a man's wig, very heavy and piled high in the front, hanging thickly at the sides and fair at the ends. The top of her head is a mass of hair. At the back, it looks vaguely like a woman's coiffure. Sometimes she wears a hat. She always wears a lot of powder and face cream and men's shoes, and she sounds and moves like a man as well. I do not think that I have forgotten anything, except sometimes she wears a sword and a buffalo hide collar, and her wig is black. Everyone who meets her from here on out always make mention of the wig, which it just sounds like she was not taking care of. She's not putting it in any sort of container. She was not maintaining the wig, so the wig just gets wilder and wilder looking. But bear in mind that she also shaved her head, right? So she shaved her head and then just like plop this like bad wig on on top and that was kind of the look so she spent so much time with this guy the duke de guise of course everybody were like are they lovers which like anytime she spent any time with anybody of any gender it's like "Ooh, are they lovers so, like everyone just really wanted her to have a lover did she i don't know with him almost definitely no partially because around the same time she's hanging out with him she met the marquise elizabeth de castellan who is aka La Belle Provençale, so she was this beautiful 20-year-old woman, and Christina fell in love with her, in the sense that one can fall in love with someone you've just met and who you don't know. So she was just very attracted to her. Elizabeth was one of the most beautiful women in the kingdom. She was now 20, she had been married at age 13, but then her husband died in a shipwreck, so she was this sexy young widow. And in fact, Christina delayed the procession to Paris to meet Mazarin to talk about taking over Naples, because... She was so infatuated with this beautiful woman. Christina wrote her a letter, which again, she barely knew her. But this is a significant letter, especially in terms of the like sexual identity. So Christina wrote, Ah, if I were a man, I would fall at your feet, submissive and languishing with love. I would spend days, I would spend nights in contemplation of your divine attractions. Your beautiful eyes are the innocent authors of all my woes. I will spend the rest of my life in a state of bittersweet enchantment while I await some happy reversal that will change my sex. In this sweet hope, I count the days of my life. So in the biography by Veronica Buckley, she's like, women wrote letters, you know, people wrote letters like this all the time. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. People just wrote flowery things all the time, which I question because it's similar-ish to the letters that she wrote to Eva Spare, her maybe lesbian lover from before. But to say like, I wish that I were a man, I await some happy reversal that will change my sex, is a pretty extreme thing to say. She and the Marquise. this is again, not a cute lesbian love story, so like they didn't, I think they might have kept exchanging letters for a while, but eventually the Marquise did get married again within two years, and one day, when her husband was out of town, her husband's two brothers tried to rape her, she defended herself, but they forced her to take poison, then killed her with a pistol and a dagger. So I mentioned that not just to be a bummer, but also just a reminder of what life was like, even for really wealthy, privileged women at this time. Like the the shit that Christina was doing was so unusual, so unusual in the face of just horrific conditions being faced by like every other woman in all of Europe eventually christina made it to paris and i imagine it being like that song from the animated version of anastasia where they're just like "Ooh la la like she just got to paris like she's been a fan of french parisian culture her whole life so she just shows up and it's just everything everything she'd always dreamed of she's in the city that she fantasized about and to her delight because of her with Mazarin, she got like you know, the huge royal greeting, whatever, you know, like tens of thousands of soldiers all standing to greet her. Fireworks, cannons, etc. She was even presented with a key to the city. And in a very Christina-like touch, she had entered on a horse. I think it was borrowed probably from the Duke de Guise. It was like a really cool, like a great horse. And she was wearing like this red dress. The horse was wearing purple and gold. And she liked being on the horse so much that she actually refused to get off the horse, even though she was supposed to get off the horse and go on the stage to like accept the key of the city. So right away, it's just kind of like, oh, is this gonna go well? Are the people of France gonna like vibe with this weirdo? Uh, So far, kind of. While she was there, she went to see various plays and things and she just made a spectacle of herself. Like the people of France were just so excited to see this interesting, unusual person. Like when she went to see plays, for instance, the audience would often just watch her instead of the play because she, her reactions are so extreme. Like when she thought something was funny, she would laugh so loud. She'd repeat lines. Even when she got bored and she fell asleep, she did it very noticeably. But what everybody wrote about is that she didn't sit in the typical way that people sat back then, which is now, which is of the way, the typical way people sit now, which is like with your butt on a seat and your back on the back of the chair and like your legs in front of you. Rather. At one place, she sat, like, with her legs sprawled over the side, like the arm of the chair, and she would, like, switch sides. At another play, she sat in a chair and then propped her legs up on a second chair, adopting a posture that one Parisian wrote was so indecent that one glimpsed what even the least modest woman should keep hidden. So I think they're saying genitalia. I feel like she was wearing pants. So, not sure. She also, when she went to church services, she would just like chit chat with people all through it, which annoyed everybody, especially because she was supposed to be this great new Catholic convert. People are like, shouldn't she have the zeal of the newly converted? But in fact, she did not. And the whole reason why she went there was to meet with Mazarin, but he was not in Paris. He was in Campagne. Maybe that's how you say that. So she eventually was like, well, can I meet with him in Campagne? and so eventually she did get permission to go there but when she went to meet him it would only be her alone nobody else could go into like the room with him and this is because he was really really private apparently he had really interesting art collections and stuff it's like sort of like an anna Wintour moment it's just like you know if you're gonna see him it's on his terms and so she arrived you know carriages and horses and stuff clearly she had ridden there on her horse because she arrived all windswept her wig was all like half off, like disheveled. Her skin was sunburnt and suntanned. And just imagine, you know, this isn't quite a Marie Antoinette period, but it's like the just before that period. Like the fancy, elegant French women were like, you know, kept their skin so pale. Like the dresses were so fun. Like everything was so, you know, like in a chevalier type way. It's like it takes four hours to get ready. And she just blows in like sunburnt with her wig half off, wearing her like random like short skirt on top of pants look. And so she brought with her the uh, acrobats, the Santinelli brothers, who, to the people in campaign, they did not look fancy or elegant. And everyone was also surprised that she didn't travel with women, because usually queens traveled with ladies-in-waiting and that sort of thing. And the only women she had with her were these two random Italian thieves, who she just like brought around with her. So she finally met Mazarin. Things for the plan to like take over Naples, seemed to be going okay. But... Yeah, just her personality was kind of making people question if they wanted to work with her as well. After she stayed with Mazarin for like a week, it was time to leave France to go back to Rome and then maybe like on to Naples. She was really excited about the plans, couldn't wait to get started. She wrote making promises she could never keep, like such as saying that she would make Mazarin the next pope. Um, she started ordering more clothes for herself. She invented this whole new way that everybody should treat her as the queen where you know a series of like walking backwards and like a certain number of bows and stuff and nobody could remember what the rules were and eventually like even she couldn't remember what the like special choreography was and when she got overwhelmed by it she just like pretend to be sick and go to her room in her mind she was already the queen of naples but mazarin was kind of ghosting her and she started to hear that france and spain might be coming to peace on their own and if that happened then there was no place for her for naples this, this piece troubled her. She wrote, I love the storm and fear the calm. Because if she wasn't being queen of Naples, like first of all, she had bought a lot of stuff to be queen of Naples. But secondly, like what was going to be her hobby if she couldn't just daydream about being queen of Naples all the time. So she couldn't make it back to Rome because she had spent all of her money already. So she wound up in this town called Pissarro which is, like, I'm sure a lovely place. But to her, having been in Paris and Rome, was, like, kind of small and kind of boring. She stayed there for seven months, just, like, writing letters to Mazarin and being like, when are we taking over Naples? Like, what's going on? Eventually, she'd had enough, and she decided to go back to Paris. But when she got there, she's staying in a house, like, just outside of Paris. Mazarin didn't reply. He's like, oh, no, I have the goat. Like, the G-O-U-T, the gout. The disease. He's like, I can't see you because of the gout. Sorry magically by the time she leaves he's like oh I'm better no more gout so she was humiliated obviously that she told everybody about this plan that, like that she thought this was happening and it just showed how she didn't have as much power as she liked to think she had so she had a lot of pent-up rage and that is going to come out in this next little bit which is the next sort of major Christina moment so it has to do with her longtime friend Mondaleski. What happened is everybody is suspicious and paranoid all the time about everybody because that's just, that's just like the kind of world that this is. So Mondolesky was suspicious of Francesco Santinelli, who was one of the acrobat brothers. And so he wanted to kind of manipulate Christina into turning against Francesco Santinelli. But he was acting so shady that Christina was kind of suspicious of like, what is Mondolesky up to? Disloyalty. And so, like, all the stuff she learned from Atsolino about like reading each other's letters, like, I don't know the details, but like, letters were started to show up in different places, but the seal had been broken. Like, clearly, like, other people reading other people's letters, it was all just very, like, shady things were going on. Mondaleski found out that Christina had been reading his letters, Mondaleski's letters. Mondaleski forged some letters, pretending like Santinelli had written them. And the letters were all like, I don't know if they were like revealing Christina's plans or just like saying rude things about Christina. Because he knew Christina was reading letters, and so he wanted to, to use that for his advantage. But this could not have gone worse. So Christina saw these letters. She knew that it was Mondaleski's handwriting, not Santinelli's. So she's like, well, why is Mondaleski writing these mean things about me? So she summoned him. So she's staying at this place, Fontainebleau, which was a royal residence, I think. And part of that is a, it's like a long hallway with lots of art in it. It's called the Galerie des Cerfs, which translates to, I think, the Deer Gallery. And so she summoned him there to confront him about what she saw as him betraying her with these letters. She knew that he would written these forged Santinelli letters. And he's like, well, why? Why would you write these letters saying mean things about me? And then he was like, oh, fuck, like I'm really in trouble about this. And so for two hours, he begged her to try to understand what he was doing, that he was loyal to her. And all the while, three other men stood watching, their swords unsheathed. Like, she was prepared to have him executed, and he was just trying to talk his way out of it. He's like, actually, I'm so loyal to you. That's why I was doing this. But eventually, she announced he's a traitor, and she ordered his execution. And then she left, leaving him with the three guys with swords. Mondaleski begged the guards, like these guys, to intervene on his behalf, and they tried to. Um, When they went to try to talk to Christina, she was like, my mind is made up. And please just, like, carry out the execution quickly. And so from everyone who witnessed this, what they all kind of commented on was how calm she was. Like, she was just like, this is happening. She wasn't freaked out about it. Like, even though Mondaleski had been her dear friend for a long time, she was just, like, really cold-blooded about it. Which, her, if he was, like, doing treason against her and betraying her, it's like, why wouldn't she be cold-blooded about it? So eventually, so Monolesky was just like waiting around in this like deer gallery and eventually he was stabbed by, ironically, Lorenzo Santinelli. So he had been trying to turn the queen against Francesco Santinelli, the one acrobat brother, but then eventually he was stabbed by the three men, one of them being Francesco's brother, Lorenzo Santinelli. And it's one of these like if you're doing has anyone ever done the vulgar history bingo i don't know it's like if you scroll down on instagram it's there but one of the things is i think botched execution which is what this is because he was wearing like chainmail, which protected him when santinelli stabbed him in the stomach and neck and then he was chased around an adjacent room before finally they succeeded in dealing him a fatal wound to his throat so he was executed in the deer gallery this was an incredibly big deal On legal grounds, Christina was within her rights to do this because as queen, even a queen without a country, she was considered the absolute ruler to all members of her household and Mondolesky was a member of her household, so she was allowed to execute him. But that's like, technically. In practice, everyone was just like, what just happened? For instance, in Rome, um, Mondolesky was an Italian nobleman who was murdered by a Swedish woman and then Santinelli was one of the executioners. So people in Rome were kind of just like, this is not cool. And also the letters proving his guilt, like the forged letters, no one's ever seen them since then. Christina likely had them burned. The Pope himself denounced Christina as, quote, a barbarian brought up barbarously and living barbarously and declared he would take legal action against the killers because Mondolesky had been his subject, like technically is a person who lived in Rome. And he also banned Christina from returning to Rome. So this was, like, a whole situation. Christina wrote to Mezarin, explaining, like, hey, guess what, this just happened, whatever. And for once, he actually answered her letter. And he was, like, horrified. And he advised her, like, here's what you should do. Like, say it wasn't, you weren't involved. Say, like, it was just scuffle between courtiers. Like, just get yourself not involved in this whole thing. And she's like, I'm sorry, did you say I should write a multi-page Thing explaining exactly what happened and how I did it because that is what she did. She was just like really owning what she had done, which I don't know, whatever. Like, if she had tried to cover it up, that would have been different. But the fact that she was just like, yeah, I did it, you know, I kind of respect that, I guess. I don't know. I don't respect that she did it, but I respect that she wasn't trying to weasel her way out of responsibility for it. But Her doing that really burned the final bridge between her and Mazarin slash France. Like, for a while, she was still staying in Fontainebleau, but she was not allowed to enter Paris for months. And then finally, she was permitted to go back, and it was carnival season. But kind of like how Mazarin was like, I have gout. Sorry, I can't talk to you. Bye. All of her other Parisian friends were all, like, mysteriously busy didn't have time to see her. So, though she was being spurned by, like, all the important people in society... She was just like, it's Carnival, fuck it, let's just, whatever. She's whatever at this age, like 29 years old. So she went to all the, like, public balls, she went to all the, like, entertainments. She would arrive masked and costumed. Now, the biography said, each time more fantastically. And I'll leave that to all of our imagination, know what we know about her. Her love of hats, wigs, velvet what that would have looked like at one point she's wearing some sort of amazon inspired headdress like a lot of people sort of considered her or described her as an amazon because that was kind of the only context they had for like a woman who i don't know carries a sword sometimes anyway so as much as the like important people were avoiding her the like normal people the non-noble non-royal people enjoyed seeing her what her outfit's going to be and also she's just like a person about town it's kind of like Right well, I guess now it's still sort of happening, but like right after Julia Fox ended her extremely brief relationship with Kanye West, aka Yay, where people just started seeing her around town. It's like, oh my god, I saw Julia Fox. She's wearing like, you know, like a belt as a shirt. She had five her eyebrows. Like people were just really excited because she was just like a weird, unusual person and she would just like be on the streets randomly. Like she would just drink Carnival. She was apparently charging around the city in her various excellent outfits. And her behavior showed, quote, very little wisdom, a lot of bad behavior and a great desire for pleasure. So I don't know. Could this be partially her feeling guilt for the assassination or the execution of Mondalewski? Maybe. Like, was she sort of distracting herself with just partying? Maybe. I will remind you, though, that she doesn't drink alcohol. She mostly just drank juice. She liked orange juice. So she's just like partying it up, just like, enjoying Carnival, whatever, good for her. Again, she's like a young woman, just like still feeling freedom. But eventually she had no choice to depart France. France more or less kicked her out. So the king was still a little boy, Louis XIV. So his mom, Anne of Austria, was kind of in charge. And eventually she was just like, you leave. And like hired a carriage and more or less forced Christina into it. And by now she was allowed back in Rome. And so that's where she went. So she, this was her like technically third arrival in Rome, but this time it was definitely no exciting triumph. There was no, you know, big greeting for her because with the execution of Mondolesky, she just, her popularity was gone. She was the same as in France. No one wanted to have anything to do with her. The Pope remained in his summer residence and like wanted no further visits from her. Her Roman friends were also being like, new phone. Who's this? Like, sorry, I'm busy. Like no one wanted to talk to her. And so when she first arrived, she's staying at a palazzo that belonged to Mazarin. Um, He had offered her the ability to stay there as a way to, like, convince her to, like, leave France. So she's staying in this palazzo, which was ironically right across the street from the Pope's house, which the Pope was just like, ugh. Maybe that's why he's staying in the summer house. He just didn't want to run into her. But then Azzolino, remember her, like, longtime friend lover? He's still influential, so he helped her get a new house. She moved into a place called the Palazzo Riario, which became her residence for like the rest of her life. He also helped her find new servants who were mostly like people who he knew or his family members or whatever. They sort of like consciously uncoupled from Lorenzo Santinelli, AKA the murderer of Mondaleski. And yeah, so she moved in. She had all of her art, you know, that a lot of it had been in storage and stuff. So she moved in all of her. Her paintings she had gotten during her looting era all of her erotic artwork. And I like this detail that her art collection included, like, you know, all these classics and things. Statues and stuff, too. But also portraits of people who were important to her personally. Um, There was a portrait of Ebba Spare, her best friend slash lover. There was a portrait of Descartes, which is, like, okay. Portrait of Dr. Bourdelais, Apparently, just from what we know about her living in this house. Like, she had bathtubs and she still was like very seriously taking off his advice still taking regular baths eating regular meals like just true i mean one might say taking his advice too literally like she was only doing things that spark joy sometimes we all have to do things that don't spark joy anyway then april 1660 kg uh died in battle he was wounded in battle but it was kind of like He got pneumonia, and then the doctors of Sweden, who again, not Dr. Bordelais, other doctors, the doctors were like, here, we'll give you some sneezing powder, like they thought it was something else. They literally gave him sneezing powder. Um, Guess what? He died. So he was just in his 30s, KG, and so his heir was his son, also called Karl. KG stands for Karl Gustav, if you've forgotten, because I haven't said his real name in three episodes. So his son, Carl, became the new king, but he was only five years old. And his regent was another old friend, Magnus, Christina's crush from way back in the day. So Magnus was becoming, like, really important as well. But Christina was like, ooh, opportunity for me to maybe be a queen again. So she went to Sweden just to kind of, like, suss out the situation. So she pointed out that when she abdicated, she had left the throne to KG and his descendant. So if, like, KG Jr., if Carl Jr. died, then, like, she was more than happy to, you know, take over and be queen again. But the, what is it, the Riksdag, the, like, men council was just, like, that's a hard no from us. Because she's a Catholic, she had fucked them over. No, they were just, like, they sent her some paperwork being, like, Christina will never be queen of anything in Sweden ever again. That was the deal. Please sign this. And she, like, had to sign it. So. This also didn't work. She couldn't become queen of Naples. She was not going to be the new heir to the throne of Sweden. And so she left Stockholm and went to a place called Norrkoping, which was, again, so this is like a winter era. And I really, after reading all this, learning about Cecilia of Sweden, like I would love to go to Sweden. Sweden seems like a lovely place. Not in winter, if you don't like extreme cold temperatures and christina did not she'd been in you know paris and she'd been in like rome and she's just like goddamn another swedish winter maybe the ghost of descartes came to haunt her a little bit so she just kind of got her fantasies in order for once in her life atselina really stepped in here as really just kind of i don't i don't know a famous financial person but he just, like, stepped in and was good with money. And from now on, she's kind of, like, her debts are kind of better paid off. Because there's a whole thing happening where Sweden had given her the money that came from these various parcels of land. And then Azzelino sent a guy to sort of, like, investigate. And it turns out that these places had been not giving her as much money as they were supposed to. Like, she was supposed to be getting twice as much money as she was. So suddenly she, like, had money again. Diego Texiera, her friend, he was still there kind of helping out. So now with her money in order, she arrived in Rome for the fourth time. And the next couple of years were like, for once in this saga, this is where I don't think it's going to be a five part episode. Like there's a couple years where like kind of nothing happened, which is good for me in terms of like, how many episodes is this going to be? And also good for her in terms of just like, just be you and like live. So she was staying in this house, the palazzo that Odzolino had helped her get. It had a really big garden. She really enjoyed You know, not doing it herself, but hiring people to do it. She had some like 300 orange trees, so she could like always have limitless orange juice because she did not drink alcohol. She did not. She tried drinking wine for a bit when she first came to Rome, but it was not for her. So she preferred juice. Most of her servants were still men. There were some jobs that just like women generally did. Like you couldn't really hire men to do some of the stuff. And she was okay with that as long as they didn't get married or especially have children. If she saw... pregnant woman like if one of her servants was visibly pregnant or if one of her male servants pregnant wife came by she like freaked out she just like could not handle the idea of or just the concept she hated being around married and or pregnant women i don't know she started entertaining as as we've learned she had a real weakness for grifters in the form of like sexy men so she invited lots of people into her life who were just kind of like shitty people there's one guy i forget his name but he was like a convicted rapist And she was just like, "Mm, you're not so bad. And then he like, I don't know. One way or another, he um, fathered the child of one of her servants. And Christina noticed that that servant was pregnant. Then she paid to have an abortion done. But then it went badly. And then the servant died. And Christina was like, oh, that's too bad. And she kept the like rapist guy around. So, you know, every time there's something quasi wholesome about Christina like the orange juice then something you're just reminded of like oh no she's a horrible person the rapist I would say is maybe a more horrible person but Christina just like her hatred of women is a real driving force through her whole life and then for some like various financial reasons she had to return to Sweden again oh she hated being in Sweden she spent some time in Hamburg and then the Pope died This is the second pope that's been in this story. It was Pope Alexander the seventh, who had kind of not been on her side as well. And then, you know, they did the thing, the conclave, the white smoke. The new pope who was chosen was Clement IX, who, fun fact, had been a regular guest at her palace. So, like, her bro, like, her friend, maybe he was in the book club, was the new pope. So she's happy. She thinks this means good things for her. So she threw a party at her lodgings in Hamburg, which is where she was when she learned this news. Hamburg, like... Not a Lutheran place filled with German people. So she had illuminations, which I think means fireworks. um She did her trademark wine fountain again, which I feel like if it's her, you think it would be a Jews fountain. Anyway, this party enraged the Lutheran people of Hamburg, which were like almost everybody in Hamburg. And the party ended in a shooting, an attempt to kidnap her. And she had to escape in disguise through a back door, which was probably scary, but also I think she kind of enjoyed. That she loves a disguise moment, and she never stopped looking to be like, Is there a country that needs a queen? Because, like, I'm your girl. So, that was 1667. One year later, 1668, the king or emperor or whatever of the Polish Lithuanian throne abdicated and returned to France. So, the monarchy in Poland was elective. Christina, being a descendant of the House of Vasa, put herself forward as a candidate for this election. She's like, I could be your king. I have experience. She recommended herself because she was Catholic, because she was an old maid, and she intended to remain one. So she said, you know, I can just be a queen for a while and then figure stuff out, and then we can decide the next king. Like, it won't be my child, but... And she had the support of her bro, the Pope, but her application for the job was not accepted. Although she wasn't too sad about it because being in Rome meant that she could still stay close to her romantic friend, Azzolino. There's a couple bits in the story I didn't mention them as we were going, but a couple times when she left Rome, she would like look at a miniature painting of him and like cry, like she really missed him. Like she really depended on Atzino; he was just like was her person in a Grey's Anatomy way. So she was in Hamburg when this happened. Returned to Rome, so again, this is her fifth time re-entering Rome. This is November twenty second, sixteen sixty eight. And again, this is just like her good times era. So the Pope would often visit her. They had a shared interest in plays and I guess orange juice. She relaunched her book club, the Academy, and her, her home had a great hall with a platform for singers and actors. And then the Pope, um, he eventually suffered a stroke and she was among the few he wanted to see at his deathbed. Like they were, they were bros. Christina established Rome's first public theater which was in what was a former jail. I don't know what the jail would look like. Anyway, she turned a jail into a public theater. It was Rome's first public theater, because remember, there's the whole thing. When she first moved there, she had to go to hang out in convents to hear people singing and stuff. Like All the plays were being done at people's homes. Like She had a great hall in her home. But this is a theater that just anyone could go to. So, I mean, that's cool of her. It's called the Tor di Nona. The next pope, Clement X, although it came in and he worried about the influence of theater on public morals. So he, I don't, I guess he was the Pope for not a really long time. I played an ad, an ad on a previous episode for a podcast that goes Pope by Pope through all the Popes. And frankly, there's been so many Popes in this Christina saga. I think if we want to learn more about Popes, check out the Pontifacts podcast. So this is another notable thing about Christina. She lived in Rome on and off but through the reigns of like four different popes some of whom were her friends some of whom were not so clement the 10th became the new pope then i guess he died and then the next pope was innocent the 11th and things got even worse just in terms of people who like theater and freedom so within a few years he made christina's jail turn theater into a storeroom for grain it sucks Although he had been one of her bros, he had been a frequent guest in her royal box of that theater with the other cardinals, so he, like, attended the theater, then turned against her. He brought back those rules, forbidding women to perform with song or acting. He banned décolleté, aka tits-out dresses. Christina, to her credit, considered this sheer nonsense, and she continued to let women perform in her palace. Again, like, it's, you know, through these four episodes, I think we're all coming to the same understanding that she had like some cool stuff about her and some like horrific stuff about her and some like in-between stuff about her. Like she had all all different levels. I mentioned before in the last episode, I think, about how she was cool with Jewish people in a culture which was other Catholics were not cool about Jewish people. So for instance, during the tenure of Pope Clement X, she made him prohibit the custom of chasing Jewish people through the streets during the carnival. Remember when that That was in the episode where she first got there. Like she saw that and she was just kind of like, ooh, this isn't cool. So I'm glad that in time she used her influence against the Pope to make that stop because that was a pretty shitty thing that happened. And in fact, she issued a declaration that Roman Jews were under her protection. So she was cool to the Jewish people of Rome. She remained very tolerant towards the beliefs of others all her life. And maybe that was because she didn't have any super strong religious beliefs of her own, you know? So she didn't fall into that sort of dogmatic thing of just being like, my religion is great, everyone else is terrible. She's just like, believe what you want to believe. I don't, whatever. So that's like a cool thing about her. Also, she liked orange juice, her love of velvet. You know, it's not all shitty stuff. As she aged into her like 50s slash 60s, her fashion sense stayed idiosyncratic. So a person who visited Rome in April 1688, wrote, Christina is over 60 years of age, very small of stature, exceedingly fat, and corpulent. Her complexion and voice and face are those of a man. She has a big nose, large blue eyes, blonde eyebrows, and a double chin from which sprout several tufts of beard. Her upper lip protrudes a little. This guy is, like, really getting into the details. Like, were you just staring at her? Her hair is a light chestnut color and only a palm's breadth in length she wears it powdered and standing on end uncombed okay so she moved from the like bad wig era into kind of just like a real buzz cut sort of era still not brushing her hair messy hair i don't care was one of her slogans not really she is very smiling and obliging you will hardly believe her clothes a man's jacket and black satin reaching to her knees and buttoned all the way down a very short black skirt and men's shoes a very large bow of black ribbons instead of a cravat, and a belt drawn tightly under her stomach, revealing its rotundity all too well. And there's a picture of her from around this era that I'm going to put on Instagram that sort of illustrates this look. She also seemed to have really gone into, like, wearing a whole lot of ribbons in her hair at one point. So, February 1689. Christina was 62 years old, and she fell seriously ill after a visit to the temples in Campania. And she received last rites, which is like the thing that happens to Catholic people when you are going to die. She didn't die, though, right away. But then she developed an acute streptococcus bacterial infection, then pneumonia and a high fever. And so she was like clearly dying. On her deathbed, she sent the Pope a message asking if he could forgive her insults. I didn't write down here whether he did or not. I don't know if it was. I think it wasn't the Pope who liked her at this point. So he might not have. She died April 19th, 1689, at six in the morning. She had asked for a simple burial in the Pantheon in Rome, but the Pope insisted on her being displayed in parade for... Not in a parade. I guess in sort of, you know, like, late in state for four days at Riario Palace, which is where she lived. She was embalmed, covered with white brocade, a silver mask, a gilt crown, and a scepter. And so, in a similar fashion to... When popes were buried, her body was placed in three coffins one of cypress, one of lead, and finally one made of oak. The funeral procession led from Santa Maria in Vallicella to St. Peter's Basilica, where she was buried within the Grotto, the Vatican Grotto, one of only three women ever given this honor. Her intestines were placed in a high urn. Is that what you do? I don't know. And after so many episodes this season, I feel like if we do another Vulgar History bingo card, we need to add like real ornate funeral. Because that's been in almost every person's story. In 1702, so that's like 15 years ish after she died, the next pope, Clement XI, commissioned a monument for her because they were really trying to rewrite her story of being like, look at this great Catholic convert and how she was such a great person. It's like, when she, so this monument was placed in the body of the basilica. And when she died, so Azzolino, her BFF, her person, she had named her sole heir. And so his job was to make sure her debts were settled. But he was too ill to even join her funeral, and he died in June the same year that she died. His nephew, Pompeo Azzolino, was his sole heir, and Pompeo rapidly sold off Christina's art collections. So, you know, such is life. The character of Christina inspired plays, books, operas. So most famously, in 1933, there's the movie Queen Christina starring Greta Garbo, another queer Swedish person. It's described in Wikipedia as this film depicted a heroine whose life diverged considerably from that of the real Christina, which I talked about last time, but it made her seem like she was in love with Antonio Pimental, and that she abdicated to be with him instead of just because she wanted attention and chaos. There's a 1974 film called The Abdication starring Liv Ullmann, which is about Christina arriving in the Vatican, falling in love with Azzolino. Then there was a play in, ni- sorry, that came out in 2012 by Michel-Marc Bouchard. So it's a play called Christina, the Girl King. And then in 2015, a movie based on that called The Girl King. In this film, she's portrayed as a lesbian, a lover of Countess Ebba Spare. And one of the sort of plot points of that movie is that Christina is so overwhelmed by her love for Ebba. That's why she brings Descartes so that he can like explain to her the nature of love. So Descartes is in that movie as well. She's also featured as the leader of the Swedish civilization in the video game expansion pack Civilization VI, Gathering Storm. And there are some places named after her, such as the Christine District in Tallinn in Estonia, um, Queen Village in Philadelphia, the Christina River is a tributary of the Delaware River in the U.S., and also there is a place in Finland called Kristineland. And wrapping everything back to what we talked about in the first episode or I guess it was more so in the in the first or second episode like the whole thing about Queen Christina and the whole like intersex thing and like was she intersex what was the genitalia so um in I think let me just look this up yeah so 1965 there's an exhumation of her bones and so at first I was like oh my god was her body dug up so they could see if she was intersex from your skeleton which is not a thing you can tell from a skeleton but it was something about i think she was dug up to see that whole thing about her how her shoulders were uneven and there was a whole thing about like was she was she dropped as a child i don't know i think they dug up her body to see if her shoulders were uneven but while the body was dug up like let's just see if there's any evidence to choose intersex which like guess what there's not first of all there's not clues about intersex traits in your skeleton usually or ever I don't think. But also, even if there were, like, guess what? There's not been a lot of scientific research on, like, the skeletons of people with intersex traits. There's not a lot of history that's been done. Also, I didn't mention this in the... I kept meaning to, but it never came up. So some people have also theorized that she may have had autism, which I don't know. Maybe she did. I think this is mostly people who are looking at the way that she behaved in social situations, maybe, but... Who knows? Although I will say like as a person, Christina, it's like if you see yourself represented her in some way like I do as a person who likes orange juice and doesn't brush my hair like she was there's so many things that she might have been. And I think it's all valid to look at her life through these lenses and to see her as representation for all these different things. The different identities that I think people have. Well, back then people are I don't know. They're all just like she talks like she talks like a man. So That must mean she has a penis. Like, fuck what people were saying back then. What, like, people are saying now about her is like, maybe she had intersex traits. Maybe Christina was a trans man. Maybe Christina was a lesbian woman. Maybe Christina was asexual. Maybe she was demisexual. Maybe she was bisexual. Like, most of the letters in the LGBTQIA plus acronym have been applied to her at some point. I think. She's such an unusual person for her era that it's comforting to try and be like, well, she was this. This explains like why she acted like she was. Like whatever she was. If she was an intersex person, if she was autistic, if she whatever. Like she was also herself entirely. And I don't know if a label could explain her behavior other than just like, that's just what she was like. Christina, she's just got to be Miley sort of thing. So we have the scoring at long last so first is the lady jane seymour memorial award for outstanding supporting performance the person who i would submit for this i think is azzolino like i wouldn't put forward any of her other friends in her whole life because like mondaleski she killed him the acrobats she kind of like fucked them over ebba spare she didn't treat kindly but azzolino like he had her back he like helps out her finances like he was there like even when everybody was ostracizing her because of the whole modelski execution thing. Like he was with her, you know, in this romantic friendship, this like really devoted, like he was her beloved. Even if they didn't have a sexual relationship, they loved each other so strongly. So I think I'm going to give it to Azzelino. Like he couldn't have been easy to be Christina Sweden's person, but he like was there for her. He helped her out like to the end. Too bad his nephew is apparently an asshole. So scoring for Christina. Just because this is a four-episode saga doesn't mean she's necessarily going to score higher just based on the amount of details we have. Like, I'm still going to try to assess this as fairly as I would if it was a one-episode person. We just have more examples of things with her, but all the examples kind of go towards proving the same point. The first area we score on is scandalousness. And I asked cultural... Our Swedish cultural attache, Kim, who answered some of my other questions about Christina and just like, what do people in Sweden think of her and stuff like that? Who suggested like for Scandaliciousness, a 10. Like abdicating is like to me now in like the year 2022 in like Canada, I'm just like, okay, she abdicated. But like it was beyond, it was the hugest thing anyone could consider doing. Like for her to do that was mind blowing to so many people. And then (laughs) she also went on to live this life of just, like, she scandalized people everywhere she went, like the execution of Mondaleski, the way that she was going to, like, take over Naples secretly, the way she sat at the theater, like, the way that she spread rumors about herself, like, the fact that she maybe had lesbian affairs, like, she was, in every way I can possibly think of, in a vulgar history context, like, a 10 for scandalousness. Like, there was not a year of her life, except for maybe some of the years living in her, like, orangery where she wasn't doing something completely audaciously scandalicious. Like, and even her like literal tits out moment, you know, when she was wearing the tits out neckline and the Pope was like, hey, stop that. And she's like, oh, sorry, do you want me to wear this pearl necklace as well as the tits out neckline? Fuck you. Like 10. 10 for scandaliciousness. I'm also, so for scheminess, I feel like this might be a 10 as well. Because scheminess It's not, ideally, it's like good schemes, but she was never not scheming. Like she was scheming before she even abdicated, she was scheming like to have her secret, maybe um, little letter writing affair with KG. She was scheming to undermine what Axel Oxenherno was doing. And she schemed her way to be able to abdicate and to get herself a pension. Like she grifted her way through all of the Rome years. Like she had no money, but she schemed her way through life, beginning to end. Some of them were just like kind of random chaos-causing schemes, some of them were like literal schemes. Like, I think it's a 10 for scheminess. Significance is a tricky one because I think... So again, just in checking with Kim, official Swedish cultural ambassador. So abdicating was a big deal. Like, that's very significant for, like, the history of Sweden. Like, if she had married someone and had a child, like, the Vasa dynasty would have continued. So the effects of every Swedish monarch after her are affected by the fact that she abdicated, really. She also brought all the scholars and stuff to Sweden. She collected art and books. So just in terms of the history of like art collection and the history of like (laughs) philosophy, she killed Descartes by accident. She created nobility left and right. Like she made all these titles for people to make money. Like her significance is quite considerable, especially if we're on a 10 point scale, like comparing her to other people who we've looked at on this show. Like she made moves that like had effects for generations to come in European history. So I think her significance, I'm going to say an 8.5. Sexism bonus is an interesting thing because this is where everyone gets at least a 5 because like we're all living breathing in the oxygen that is the patriarchy. So the sexism bonus. So like this made her life harder. Like she found a way to survive and thrive by basically throwing women under the bus and acting like a man all the time. So she was never Like once she kind of got going, like she was able to make things work for herself and sexism didn't super get in her way once she was like in the Rome era. But I think it did add extra challenges for her up to the point where she did abdicate. All the health problems she had where people were just always trying to make her get married and have children, which they, they would have been doing that if it was a man king also, I guess. They just like really wanted an heir. But just that added sexism of just how people treated her. Up until the point she abdicated where they're like, wait, she has free will? What? Like, it added to all of her health problems and things. But I think overall, she overcame a lot of the sexism in her world by acting like a man and not supporting other women. So I'm just going to leave it at a five, I think, for her for sexism. I think there's just the inherent sexism she lived with, but it didn't extra get in her way. So this score is going to add up to 33.5. Which puts her very close to the top. International is like turning out this season in terms of where they're landing on the Scandalosha scale. So thirty-three point five is one, two, three, four, five, six. She's the seventh highest. She's just above. Joanna of Naples had thirty-three. Her ancestress Cecilia of Sweden, thirty-one point five, which is impressive considering Cecilia of Sweden didn't do quite as much as Christina did, but Cecilia did some major stuff. Remember Piracy, etc. So yeah, to recap, the top right now. The top is Fredigan with a 38, Queen Margot with 37.5, and then all from the season. Number three is Njinga with 36, Harem Sultan tied with her with a the 36, then the Chevalier Dayan 35.5, Malinzine 35.5, Christine of Sweden 33.5. Like seven of the top 10 are from this international season. It's exciting to me. You know, the scan out to the scale is just kind of like seeing where do people lie. It's not a competition. I really try to emphasize that as well. But just like in terms of like people who have the qualities that we reward on this podcast, like this season has been pretty incredible for that. So thank you for listening to this ongoing, unending saga of one of the most unpleasant people we've ever discussed on this podcast. If you have suggestions of people to talk about in Vulgar History, so if you go to vulgarhistory.com, which is the website, there's a little thing there where you can contact me and there's a form to suggest people you want me to cover. Or if you have like other feedback or thoughts about the podcast, please let me know if you are going to buy books about Christine of Sweden or whoever, if you want to go back and buy like all the Royal Diaries, like if you want to just like, because Christine of Sweden was a Royal Diaries heroine, there's a link in the show notes to buy through mybookshop.org link. And that's where when you buy the books, a little bit of money goes towards me and this podcast. You can also help support the podcast and get some fucking cool clothes at vulgarhistory.store. vulgarhistory.store. Use code TITSOUT for free US shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off. By the time this podcast comes out, there will be Christina of Sweden merch. I'm just solidifying what that's going to look like. But she's been a real memorable person. Bearing in mind that at least a third of the people listening to this like do not like her. I'm trying to be thoughtful about what would be some good merch that you might enjoy even if you don't stand for Christina like I might. You can also support me, slash the podcast directly, by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash annfosterwriter. So that's where you pledge, if you pledge a dollar a month, then you get early access to all the episodes of Vulgar History. If you pledge at least $5 a month, then you get those episodes. Plus also, you get access to the super secret special podcast, Vulgar Peace Theater, which I think this Saturday of the week that this episode comes out I'm going to be joined by Alison Epstein and Lana Wood Johnson we're going to talk about the 2015 movie The Girl King and what may get right and or wrong about what I think Christina was really like so all those things to support the podcast I super appreciate because of your support I've been able to do as many episodes as we're doing this season like if you look back like this season has been going since the beginning of March we're in like month four or five or something of like A new episode every week, and I'm able to do that because of support from listeners like you. But don't feel any pressure. It's a wild time in world history, and the most important thing that you can do is just listen to this podcast. The second best thing you can do is tell other people to listen to this podcast, and the third best thing you can do, that's also free, is to rate and or review the show. So if you're listening on Spotify, which a lot of people are, there's a place there where you can like rate it, five stars. We're getting close to 2,000. We're at like 1.7. Okay, five star reviews. So if we can get to two thousand, that'd be exciting for me personally. If you're listening to this on um, Apple Podcasts or other places, where you can leave a review, leaving a review super helpful. Also makes my day. Thank you. And yeah, you can follow us at Instagram on Instagram at vulgar history pod. On Twitter, I'm there at vulgar history. And this has been such a journey for me and for you. We've gone from Sweden through German city states to Rome to France, all over the place. Denmark was mentioned, quite an international tale. So as Christina would probably recommend as well, you know, keep your pants on, keep your tits out. And I'll talk to you all next time.